Hello, and welcome to the Faithful Forebearers. Episode 7, Anselm of Canterbury. My utmost apologies that it's taken so long to get this next episode out. As you know, the holidays just happened, and I am a pastor, which means I've been pretty busy. And to top that all off, I got a terrible cold. So, seeing as I would be a bass instead of my usual melodious tenor voice, I decided that I would just wait a couple weeks. But, here we are. So in the last episode, we discussed the missionary brothers Cyril and Methodius, the great missionaries to the east and the north in the 9th century. But now we're going to make a bit of a jump geographically and chronologically. This episode we will be returning to Northern Europe and to the British Isles, but we are going to enter the 11th century, that is, the 1000s. It is unfortunate we won't be spending that much time in the 10th century, but sadly there's not much written in that period. Vikings began attacks all along the northern coasts, and many churches and monasteries were destroyed. And at least in northwestern Europe, many kingdoms and governments splintered and weakened, and so not a whole lot is recorded. That isn't to say there weren't important saints and church leaders during this time, but there's not much written about them. We will look at one next episode, though, in Germany. But for this episode, we're jumping a little bit forward, so we're moving from the 800s to the 1000s to meet Anselm of Canterbury. Now, Anselm is someone who was very influential upon Christianity and upon all of Western thought. His thinking helped define Christian theology and Western philosophy to this very day. If you've studied church history or philosophy, you've probably heard of him, but otherwise you might not know him. So let's take a look at exactly who Anselm was. So Anselm, like Augustine of Canterbury, or Boniface, or Theodore, would become famous in a place far from his home. Anselm was born in Aosta, Italy, in the year 1033. We don't know a lot about his early years, but we know that pretty quickly he was interested in studying. So he did what any young scholar of his day would do. He wandered. He traveled around Europe looking for a school where he could study for a long time. And in 1059, when he was 26 years old, he found the Monastery of Beck in Normandy, northern France. And it turned out this was a great place to study, because here he met a famous scholar of the day, Lanfranc. Now, Lanfranc was a bit of a scholarly celebrity, and Lanfranc attracted some of the best students from the medieval world, including Anselm. And apparently Anselm was very quick, even at his young age, because soon he was one of Lanfranc's best pupils. But Anselm's study there was first just secular. That is, he was not a monk himself, though studying at a monastery. But after a year and some serious deliberation, Anselm decided that he too would become a monk at Beck. Remember that becoming a monk was no light decision. It meant a life of celibacy and separation. At least it meant that if the monk took his oath seriously, which not all of them did. But Anselm did, and he was committed to his oath. Then, in the year 1063, three years after Anselm took on the monastic life, his teacher, and now friend, Lanfranc, 
left Beck for another post in Kane. Anselm, who had outshone all his fellow students, took Lanfranc's post and became the principal teacher there. Now, when Anselm took over, he had a few ideas of his own for the school. While Lanfranc had discussed broad, secular topics with the students, especially students who were not just monks, Anselm was more singularly concerned with theology. And so, Anselm changed the school to fit his interests, and he spent most of his time working with the monks and pondering and meditating on the mystery and logic of God. His first major work, Monologion, was the result of these ponderings and discussions. He had not originally intended to publish Monologion, but he did so at the encouragement of his pupils. In 1078, Anselm published the sequel to Monologion, Proslogion, which contained his now very famous ontological argument. We'll look more deeply at that and his other works near the end of the episode. But even after publishing these works, and after being the principal of the famous school of Beck, in the 1070s Anselm was still not a major figure in the intellectual world. But after several years, his work started to circulate, and this began to change. Soon his work was found all around Europe in monasteries and schools, and by the 1080s, Anselm was becoming well-known. But as always, with this new fame also came detractors. The first serious rebuttal to his work was by a man named Galnilo. He was also a monk, and the two met publicly and debated. But far from being upset at this rebuttal, Anselm was delighted at the debate, and the meeting sharpened most of Anselm's arguments. In fact, Anselm was so happy with Ganilo's challenges and his own answers to them, that from then on he always included their dialogue when he published the Proslogion. Unfortunately for Anselm, he also met some less thoughtful critics. Apparently there are trolls in any age. Another critic of his writings, a man named Rosalind, treated Anselm not as a partner in discussion, but as an enemy to be defeated. Rosalyn began to try to link Anselm to heretical teaching, such as patripassionism, which is a belief that says God the Father also died on the cross. But Anselm always strove to be orthodox, and he was horrified to find that his name was now being tied to heretical teachings. So he quickly wrote a treatise on the incarnation of the word to try to show what he really thought. Thankfully for Anselm, he was able to put the fire out before it did too much damage. After these debates, and as his work spread, the church hierarchy also began to take notice of him. Soon they wanted more than simple treatises from their new rock star scholar. The Pope wanted Anselm to take the post of Archbishop, and specifically he wanted him to follow the path of his old teacher again, Lanfranc, to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now I should pause for a moment to talk a little bit about Lanfranc, because he had quite an adventure of his own. You see, a lot is happening in Normandy and England right around this time. Does the year 1066 ring a bell? If it doesn't, we can do some review. So in the 900s, Vikings were a big problem, as we mentioned, especially in Northern Europe, and they started regularly terrorizing Northern France. So, in the 900s, a French king gave some Vikings, a.k.a. Northmen, some land in the north of his kingdom. In exchange, these Vikings would be vassals of the French king. 
and they would also be a buffer against future Viking attacks. This land of the Northmen, or Normans, became known as Normandy. Well, these Normans were a restless bunch, and they were always looking for somewhere to conquer, and one of those places was across the English Channel. In 1066, they invaded, and their invasion culminated in the very famous Battle of Hastings. Now, more can be found on this story and about all things Norman in a podcast called Norman Centuries, which I highly recommend. But after this invasion, the Normans became the overlords of England and the Anglo-Saxons, and soon there became a high tension between these two groups. Things in England were changing, but in Europe, the very nature of religion and church work was also changing. From now on, almost every major power would be at least nominally Christian. You remember 400 years ago, back in the 600s, the Anglo-Saxons themselves were invading England, but they were doing so as pagans. And so, Augustine of Canterbury and Theodore of Tarsus had to work hard to evangelize. And just 300 years before this, in the 700s, remember the unchristian Saxons were being evangelized by people like Boniface and Alcuin. But now, almost all Europe has been reached in one way or another by Christianity. This does not mean that the average European knew all that much about Christianity, but now Christianity was starting to seep through all European society and culture. And this also made the work of an archbishop very different from what it had been. From now on, instead of evangelizing one group or another, it was to some degree trying to get both sides to play nice with each other especially when one nominally Christian group had just conquered another. And this was the world that Lanfranc entered when he became the Archbishop of Canterbury, a place that was at least nominally Christian, both by the conquerors and the conquered. But even in this chaos, Lanfranc did what he could to strengthen the church and the faith of his countrymen. He was determined to fight the corruption in the church and strengthen monasteries once again. He did work to put more Normans in church positions and usually found worthy men for the roles. And over his years in service, Lanfranc made the English church more respectable once again. He probably would make our old friend Theodore of Tarsus proud. His work gained him so much respect from the new king, none other than William the Conqueror or William I, that several times Lanfranc himself was William's vice-regent when the king was away. When William died, his less worthy heir Rufus was given the throne, and Lanfranc helped control this new king from excesses and abuse of power. However, Lanfranc died in 1089, only a few years after Rufus had taken the throne. While Lanfranc had helped the church and the country of England a great deal, much of his success was due to his personality and will, and once he died, a lot of his work especially restraining this new king, was lost. And it was exactly at this time that the Pope tapped our friend Anselm to be Lanfranc's replacement. So when Anselm got to his new post in Canterbury, the English church was in somewhat good organization, but again it was descending into chaos. And ultimately, Anselm hated the task that he'd been given. Administration was not his forte, nor his pleasure. 
he wrote to one friend that, I am so harassed in the archbishopric that if it were possible to do so without guilt, I would rather die than continue it. And it wasn't just that he hated administrative work either. It was also that it was a very difficult time to be an archbishop whether you loved it or not. Anselm was caught between the forces of the King of England, the Pope in Rome, and the duty of being a responsible leader for the people in England. And very rarely did these three concerns intersect. Anselm, for his credit, did try to be a good and faithful leader foremost, and this led to some tensions, such as Anselm refusing the king's direct order to give his kingdom money. Anselm wouldn't do it because he worried it would be too hard for the people living on his lands to pay the amount demanded. Tensions grew high between all parties until Anselm finally requested a leave of absence to go to Rome. This was really just self-imposed exile, and it was one that King Rufus was happy to grant. Anselm stayed in Italy until Rufus died in the year 1100. I'm sure Anselm was very pleased to have this time away. He was back near his old home in Italy, and had some quiet time to discuss theology and write. It was during his stay in Italy that he wrote one of his greatest works, Cur Deus Homo. We'll look in-depth at that work a little later, because this is arguably his greatest work. But this time away was not all spent writing in solitude. While he was in Italy, a significant church council took place, and Anselm happened to be invited. The council was the Council of Barry, and it's one that's very famous in church history. It was a meeting between both leaders from the Eastern and the Western Church. This is important because meetings like this were becoming increasingly rare. This is especially true because just 50 years ago, the Pope in Rome and the Patriarch in Constantinople had excommunicated each other. But now the two sides were looking to possibly patch up some of these differences if they could. They were especially looking to patch things up because during this time the First Crusade was taking place. While the meeting was mostly church politics, some concerning the Crusades, there were also some theological problems and differences the two sides tried to iron out. Of course, this is exactly the kind of thing that Anselm wanted to be involved in. So one of the larger theological problems at this council was the Filioque controversy. Now, Filioque means and the son in Latin, and it refers to a part of the Nicene Creed. When the Creed speaks about the Holy Spirit, it originally said this, the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. However, in the West, people had started saying who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Hence, we get Filioque. Now, the East and the West had hardened their stances on the subject, and both sides at this council tried to win the other side over. While this was a contentious issue, I should mention that this is not the main source of the East-West problems. As I've heard it described before, if this was the only problem the two groups had, they probably would not have split. And if the churches had solved this problem, but none of their other problems, they probably still would have split. But still, it was a major issue discussed at this council. So Anselm, who always loved this sort of thing, asked the Pope if he could speak on the Western position. Anselm happily prepared his address in hope of winning these Eastern Christians over. But sadly, 
Ultimately, Anselm failed. But he was still happy enough with the defense that he gave that he published his address and called it On the Procession of the Holy Spirit. Not a gripping title, but it gets to the point. Soon after, back in England, King Rufus died. Rufus's successor, Henry I, invited Anselm to return to England. But once Anselm arrived, he found that Henry was not too different from his predecessor. And once again, Anselm was torn between the Pope, the King, and his own sense of duty. Anselm felt that Henry was trying to become too involved in church matters. And if you know your church history, you know he will not be the last King Henry to cause such problems. But in dealing with this Henry, Anselm had to go to Rome at least once to settle a disagreement between himself and the king. And finally, the Pope arranged an uneasy compromise between the two, and Anselm returned to England in 1106. But now Anselm was an old man, and he hoped that he would have a little time to write a few more books. But, sadly for us and for him, he was not able to write as many as he would have liked. He died the next year. He had been bishop for 16 years, and he was 76 years old. Now, while Anselm had been an acceptable archbishop, no one denies that his greatest strength was that of a scholar. The next few centuries will see a movement called scholasticism. This is a movement in which people would delve into the intricate complexities of Christian doctrine. Some historians put the beginning of this movement with Anselm, making him the proto-scholastic. While that is debatable, there is no doubt that future scholastic theologians could not ignore his work. Several other great medieval theologians, Peter Abelard, Thomas Aquinas, and others, would use Anselm's work as a starting point, even though Abelard and Aquinas both disagreed with him and would take their ideas in other directions. But even today, Anselm's work is still seen as logically and linguistically challenging and yet clear and elegant. For hundreds of years, people have wrestled with his ontological argument. He also was able to achieve the impressive feat of never wandering into heresy or unorthodoxy. He always sought to teach correctly and took seriously his role as mentor and teacher of other people's souls. And many of his ideas are still used in churches today. So let's take a little deeper look at some of his work and ideas. As I said before, many of Anselm's ideas are foundational for church bodies today. Two of his greatest works are Monologion, which argues for the existence of God through pure reason, and his Proslogion, which is, as I said, a sequel to his first work. In Proslogion, Anselm introduces one of his most famous achievements, the ontological argument. So the ontological argument is another way of trying to prove God's existence through pure reason. As one of my old college professors, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, says of this, On my best day, I think I can almost understand it, but most of the time, I'm not really sure what's happening. The argument, in a nutshell, is this. First, you must define God as that than which no greater can be conceived. Got that? So, this makes sense to some degree. We see there are good things in the world, but we can always imagine better things. So we can have some idea of what God is, the ultimate good. 
So that's something we can conceive. But how can we conceive of something greater than is actually real? He says you can't, because since things in being are always greater than things without being, there must be some being that is actually greater than your idea of it. Did that make sense at all? Uh, it almost made sense to me that time. The idea is a little strange for a modern person. But if you're someone who's using the logic of the philosopher Plato, like people in the Middle Ages were, I guess it made more sense. But his greatest work was his book, Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became Man, or translated even more woodenly, Why the God-Man. In this book, Anselm tries to answer that question. Why did God have to become a human being in Jesus Christ? And then also, why did he have to die? In the very beginning of the book, Anselm says, By what logic or necessity did God become man? And by his death, as we profess, restore life to the world, when he could have done this through the agency of some other person, angelic or human, or simply by willing it. This question had already been asked and answered by many different writers before Anselm. Remember, the church is already a thousand years old at this point. But Anselm was not totally satisfied with any of those answers. So, in this book, he explores and explains a little bit further. The standard theory of why God had to become human up to this point was the ransom theory. This theory stated that God paid a ransom to the devil through Jesus, his life and death in exchange for the lives of all humans, whom the devil now reigned over. However, the devil did not know that Jesus could not be contained by death, so when Jesus rose from the dead, the devil lost everything. Anselm was not satisfied with this theory. In Cur Deus Homo, he argues that God reigns over everything including even the devil. So God would never need to pay ransom to the devil, since God himself can never owe anything to one of his creatures, especially not for his other creatures. Anselm himself says, I cannot see what force this argument has. If the devil or man belonged to himself or to anyone but God, or remained in some power other than God's, perhaps it would be a sound argument. But the devil and man belong to God alone, and neither one stands outside of God's power. What case, then, did God have to plea with his own creature, concerning his own creature, in his own affair, unless it was in order to punish his servant, who had persuaded his fellow servant, to desert their common master? So, since this doesn't make any sense to Anselm, he sets up a different system as to why God had to become man. And it'll be a little complex, but don't worry, we'll get through it. Anselm states that each creature, that is, each thing created, owes its creator obedience, recognition, and honor. Makes sense. When a creature refuses its creator, it is not paying what it owes, and instead it is insulting the one who gave it its existence. So all humans since Adam have not given God the obedience and the recognition they owe, and in so doing they have insulted God. So all humanity owes God the obedience that they have not given him. 
However, it doesn't matter if someone now starts giving him that obedience and acts perfectly for the rest of their life because they cannot repay the debt that they've already incurred. This is because acting perfect is what God demands anyways, so it's not paying off any extra. So let's imagine it like this. It's like you were paying a bill, but you missed five months' worth of that bill. You can return to paying that bill on time, but you still owe those previous five months. And you can continue paying the bill into eternity, but you'll never pay off those five months you missed unless you pay extra for it at some point. However, you can't pay any extra for it because that bill takes all that you make. So, this is kind of what Anselm is saying. We, as creatures, being perfect, cannot pay off the extra that's demanded. And that's why no creature can pay off that debt, because even being perfect is only paying what is already demanded. So someone would have to pay the debt who didn't already owe God everything. Since all created things owe everything to their creator, only the creator himself could pay off that debt. And that is why God had to become man and pay the debt, while no one else could. Does that make sense? My apologies, because this is the roughest of summaries, and Anselm is certainly much more subtle and reasoned in his arguments. But Anselm's theory would become very influential for the church, especially on Thomas Aquinas, whose position became standard in the Catholic Church. His atonement theory is also used by most Western churches today, even though many people don't realize it's Anselm who first articulated it. And that's not to say the Christian church did not believe that Jesus died before sins before Anselm, but they just understood it somewhat differently. Now, reading the small amount of Anselm that I did to make this episode, one thing that I noticed, and kind of makes me like him, was his humility. This is a standard trope in medieval writing, but Anselm does it well. Anselm himself warns that a lot of what he writes is speculation. He is using logic to try to understand the nature of God, not so that he can hold God in a box or domesticate God, but, he says, because he loves the mystery of God's divine nature. In his section, How Things Are to Be Said and to Be Interpreted, he states this, This is to be accepted only with this degree of certainty, that it seems to be provisionally, until God shall in some way reveal it to me better. In other words, Anselm is saying he knew that he's stepping beyond what he strictly knows to be true and into speculation, and that the true mystery was much deeper than the explanation he gives. In his own words, this book is meant to help readers not with the view of arriving at faith through reason, but in order that they may take delight in understanding and contemplation of things which they believe, and may be, as far as they are able, ready always to give satisfaction to those who ask for the reason of the hope that is in us, which is in 1 Peter. Anselm was not trying to prove faith by reason, but as he states, I do not think that anyone deserves to be rebuked if, after becoming well-grounded in the faith, he has conceived a desire to exercise himself in the investigation of logic. So that wraps up Anselm of Canterbury. Don't worry, we won't be looking at deep theology again for a while. Next week, we'll take a look at Hrosvitha, a woman who will bring back theater into the Western world. 
So that's all for this episode. Don't forget to rate me or review me on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, and maybe say something nice, like how much you like my melodious tenor voice. Let me know if you have any comments or questions. You can go to contact me on faithfulforebears.com or send an email to clericclausen at gmail.com. I'm Eric Clausen, and thanks for listening.